0: Do you remember the very first time, the very first time you ever left home for a long period where you left your mom and you left your dad? For some of you in here, it's probably like summer camp where you brought your little pillow and blanket and mom didn't tuck you in and so you're scared. Some of you, it could be a week at the weird cousin's house. Some cousins are strange. They eat weird food. I had an aunt that made some food. You know, some beef stroganoff, I didn't know it was in it, you know, it was one of those weeks. Or college, do you remember how you felt, the anxiety that would well up in your stomach, the tears that you suppressed at night so no one would see and you'd hide underneath the pillow, trying not to be loud? Being homesick is a bad feeling, it's a terrible feeling. It's often filled with fears about the danger of, oh, I'm not going to be able to make it. Can I do it on my own? Do I have what it takes to succeed? Personally for me, that first time of really feeling like I, I was alone was late August 1984. I was packing to go to the University of Dayton in Ohio. It was a hot day. I'll never forget it. I woke up, and I looked out on our front yard. Not on our front yard. There was probably 74 sale signs. All of my friends knew I was leaving, so they wanted to do a really nice gesture. They went around town took for sale signs and put it in our front yard. My parents weren't too happy. It's okay, I was going to college. I didn't have to deal with it. But I'll never forget this day. We, uh, we packed my dad's 1982 Ford Thunderbird. Remember Thunderbirds back in the day? Cool cars. I put two suitcases in there, a football. I think I had a basketball, some dress shoes. I put some posters to put in my college dorm room. I think they were of like uh, Rambo or something like that. I like Lam- Rambo back in the day, first blood. You drew first blood, Keith. You drew first blood. But my, my hometown was all I knew, honestly. I can remember leaving, going down the road. A road went down. And I can remember the memories. I can remember the late night football games when the sun was just setting. I can remember the houses where I'd go get candy for Halloween or the sparklers on the, we lived in a, a cul-de-sac. I can remember where you kind of burn your fingers or you're in bare feet and you burn your foot on that sparkler that's still going. I remember those memories. So I went down down Linford Drive, took a left on Lincoln Avenue, and then took a left on Bassett Road to head out of our town. About a half a mile away was the railroad tracks. The railroad tracks were the boundaries of our town. To the north was Bay Village, to the south was Westlake and the great beyond. You know, the scary world. I was 18 at the time, and I don't know how to tell you, but... Crossing those railroad tracks, I can still remember it where your car goes to thump, to thump. The moment we crossed, I could not stop crying. I was an 18-year-old grown guy, and I had to lie down in the back seat. I put my hand over my eyes because I didn't want my dad to say, what's the matter back there, Diane? You okay? You know, one of those <laughs> things. It was terrible. I'll never forget it. You know, have you, like, have you ever had those memories? It's, it's this fear. I think there's a lot of fears that go on. Fear of loneliness. You know, I'll no longer have my four sisters bothering me. I used to hate it, but oh, they won't bug me anymore, and maybe I'll miss that. Part of the feeling of fear was I'm untested. I'm going to college. Will I be able to pass? Will I find friends? Will I be able to do it? But I think the biggest fear was I was immature, and it was time to grow up, and I'm not sure I wanted to grow up. It was now or never. So after the railroad tracks, everything changed. I think what's happening in our main character's life with his Jacob, I think the same feelings are coming over him. Will he survive? If you go back to Genesis 27, it sets up the story. Trevor read this for us last week, but I just want you to look at two verses. Genesis 27, 42 to 43. You've got to enter into it with your brain. Verse 42, his mom's name was Rebekah. And I remember, he had a brother named Esau. And Rebekah was, uh, when Rebekah was told that her older son Esau had said what he had said, she, she heard what he would said, she sent for her younger son Jacob and said to him, your brother Esau is consoling himself with the thought of killing you. Esau wants to kill you. Now then my son, do what I say. Get out of dodge. Leave. Flee and go to my brother's house which is in Haran. And so you got to remember who we're talking about. We're talking about remember how we said Esau would be the hero of of Kent City, you know, he's the hunter, the guy that probably would jump out of the tree with the knife in his mouth and kill the the deer. He was red-haired, and everybody knows a red-haired man, angry, avoid him, be careful. And he was hairy, you know, those red-haired hairy guys, that's even worse. So his mom said, leave. So Jacob leaves Bathsheba. Look at verse 10, verse 10 of chapter 28. Look how quick it's written. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. Doesn't say much, but it gives you the idea that he was in a hurry. So there goes Jacob leaving his bay village, the only town he knew, and he set out for Haran. Haran was 400 miles away through deserts, mountains, probably roads filled with thieves, people he never met. 400 miles. How long would he be gone? It turns out he's going to be gone about 14 to 20 years, but he didn't know that. He doesn't know anything. He's on his own. So this is no small trip. And Jacob isn't really, he's not a boy at this time, but all he knew was Beersheba. All he knew was drinking lentil soup in the tents. That's all he knew. So he had to be homesick. And so uh, as we get into it, I just want to go to a side note. Last week, you recall, Trevor broke the PowerPoint. (laughs) So I don't have PowerPoint, and you're wondering what I'm going to do without it. I have something better, something better. This is called Caveman PowerPoint. And it's, I have a rock. (laughs) This is my new PowerPoint. It works. It's great. I have a rock. So we're going to use a rock. It's kind of heavy, if you didn't hear. It's a heavy rock. So it's real. That's my PowerPoint. And so we begin in verse 11. Verse 11. When he had reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. There is some conflict about what is this certain place. They call it Luz, but really it's just a certain place. You could actually write it like this. It's just a place. It's any old place. At the time, it was nothing of import. It was a rest stop on a highway, a place to catch your breath. He was 40 miles out of the city and for the night he rested. So you could read it with a verse 11. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night for the sun had slept. Then it writes, taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and he lay down to sleep. So he took a nice stone, fluffed it up a little bit and fell asleep. Oh, that's nice. It's really, that is kind of nice. I might bring this home. Oh, it's hard to get up. Anyhow, that's his, that's his pillow. A rock for pillow. So you think you have it bad. The poor guy had a rock for a pillow. One historian said about this place where he stopped. If you go there, it's a bleak, bleak place. It's a moorland, which means it's full of hills and vales, but not much vegetation. said it's arid and dry, where bare rocks are exposed everywhere. So you could say this is a place that's not good for much, probably not even a good rest stop. But Jacob was desperate. He needed to stop. He was tired, and he found a rock. (laughs) What a nice evening Jacob had. For me, I'm going to say this rock represents your certain place. This is your certain place. The present world you live in, each of us has a place that's really not that important. None of us are really that important. I think we're so obsessed with celebrity, we think if we were a celebrity, life would be great, that'd be important, but you're still not that important. Some of you try to get 100 hits on TikTok and you think you're something. You know, you're really not that important. None of us are. We just live in a certain place. A rock. Earth. This world can be really lonely, like I'm sure it was for Jacob. It can be monotonous. It can be uncaring. It can be tiring, just quite flat-out tiring. So the best we can do is some of us try to buy a posturepedic pillow to be a little bit more comfortable. But then again, we've got to wake up to another day At my world, which isn't too important, just in some certain place, Kent City, nothing big. And some of us are like Jacob where we're on a run. Jacob's running from his troubles, running from his brother. Some of you are always on a run from bad relationships. Some of you are on a run from debt, from doctors. And it tires you out, man. It just gets tiring. It gets tiring. How much longer can I do this? And so the soft pillow you fall asleep on at night might as well be a rock because you can't even get to sleep. Some of you are there. Right now you are there. You are at a certain place where you don't feel important and you're tired of running and you're just lonely. So here we are on our rock. And we're exactly where God wants us. Because watch what happens, starting in verse 12. He had a dream, so apparently he was so tired he fell asleep on a rock, so he was exhausted. And in his exhaustion he had a dream, in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth, with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord. So the first thing it says, he has a dream. He has a dream, and dreams in the Bible are very interesting things. They're like windows into a world that you don't see by your eyes. You can't hear with your ears and touch. Dreams will bring you into a realm that you didn't think was possible. It's ironic. you know. Dreams can still work that way. Some of us, though, don't care about our dreams. I'm I'm not going to be big into dreams because I'm not sure we can interpret them rightly, but sometimes dreams do wake you up, that there's other things going on in this world. So it's ironic, you fall asleep to wake up. (laughs) So a dream are like windows to another world. So what did he see in this dream? He saw three things. He saw a stairway, he saw angels, and he saw God himself. Let's talk about the stairway. What is the stairway? There's some discussions that it might have been like a ziggurat tower in Babel where it reached the heaven and angels are walking up and down this invisible tower. I'm not sure about that. Some people think it's um, like a rainbow, like Skittles. The angels slide off the rainbow and Skittles come out the other side, you know. Some people think it's a, uh, you know, a cosmic escalator because the angels are tired of flying, so they jump on this thing and it moves them you know, up and down. I don't know what it is. But the, but most scholars would say, there is some indication that this is trying to help us see that there is a movement of heaven to earth. It touches each other. Earth is not it. That behind this veil of wood or behind this veil of atoms, there's another realm. It's another reality. And in this other reality, there's creatures that are amazing. It says they're angels. Angels are messengers. Messengers are sent for two reasons. Angels are sent for two reasons. Sometimes they're sent to declare things, to bring a message. Sometimes they are sent to serve those who are God's, protect them, encourage them, scare them. So angels according to scripture are more real than you can imagine they're all over place all over the place and while we're just concerned about our rock there might be other things going on that you have no idea none we miss we miss the spiritual and the normal mundane of life the book of daniel i want you to go there real quick to show you what angels are like daniel chapter 10 i think this is one of the coolest visions of an angel in the Bible, Daniel chapter 10. So you've got Psalms, you have the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then you get to Daniel. Go to Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10, and I want you to look at verses 5 through 12 with me. Some people think what I'm going to be reading to you is a vision of Jesus because he shows up like this in Revelation. I think angels are meant to reflect Christ. So I think this is actually an angel. And it shows you what they're like. Verse 5, Daniel 10. So you have Daniel the prophet who wrote this book. He's sitting, he's standing by the river Tigris. He's on the shore of the Tigris River. And it said, I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen. So he's in all white, dressed in linen with a belt of the finest gold around his waist. His body was like chrysolite. That means it's a clear type of glassy substance. His body is shining. His face like lightning. His eyes like flaming torches. His arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze and his voice like the sound of a multitude or rushing water. You can think of the sound of the Niagara Falls. Verse 7, I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. The men with me did not see it. So there's an implication here that some people see spiritual things, some don't. However, those spiritual things still scared these guys so much that they left, they fled, and they hid themselves because they knew something was going on. Verse 8, Daniel said, so I was left alone. Gazing at this great vision, I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale. And I was helpless. Then I heard him speaking, and as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, that means God views you with a lot of respect, Daniel. You who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you and stand up, for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up but I was trembling. Then he continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. This is amazing. Here's what this is saying. The moment you pray, an angel's dispatched. Your prayers don't just hit the ceiling and bounce back. When they reach God, he acts. It's amazing. I think sometimes we see because we can't see things and we can't hear things and touch things, nothing's happening. But what this whole story of Jacob and this story here in Daniel is saying is there is more in life than meets the eye. And what is more? So we have a stairway of angels and we have the Lord. The Lord is the one who sends the angels. That is what the means by the term the Lord of hosts. You probably heard that, probably sang that in songs, and goes, Lord of hosts, what does that even mean? I don't know, but I like it. Lord of hosts means he's in charge of all the angels. He's in charge of the host of the army of heaven. He's the commander of the realm of the legions of angels. And Hebrews said there's thousands upon thousands of them. If, can you imagine thousands of these guys? Let's scare one guy, a thousand of those guys. We don't think like that because we are too busy worrying about rocks. So it's the Lord who sent the angels. And as he talks to Jacob back in Genesis 28, he's going to give him hope and reassurance through promises. He's going to give him two kinds of promises. General promises and specific personal promises. And it's exactly what a man who's homesick on a run by himself needs. He needs hope. How am I going to make it? Can I really do it? God shows up to give him hope. And so let's look at the general promises he gives. If we go back to Genesis 28, the first one is verse 13. Listen to what he says. This is the general promise. I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. You will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. So it's a very general promise. It's the covenant promise. It's the fifth time in the Old Testament this specific promise is given. It was first given to his grandpa Abraham. Abraham, you're going to be the father of many nations. Those nations are going to bless the earth. You probably remember that. We talk about it all the time. He gave that same promise to Isaac. And now Jacob, the grandson to Abraham, is getting the exact same promise. But I have to be honest with you, if I was Jacob and I was in his shoes, I am not sure the restatement of this promise would have done much for me. And you're probably saying, huh? Sounds kind of blasphemous. You know, I'm not sure general promises do much in the moment that I'm scared out of my mind. My brother's going to kill me. I'm on the run, and you're giving me some general promise? You feel the same way. I'll, I'll, I'll prove it to you. When life is hard, and you're in a moment of despair, if I was to say to you, don't worry about that, you know Romans eight twenty-eight: all things work together for good to those who love God. And you would say, yeah, I know that, but give me something better than that. All right, I'll give you a real good one. We have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and a heavenly kingdom. And you're like, yeah, that's good, but I'm, I'm going to die here. Well, how about this one? Jesus is someday going to come out of heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel and the dead in Christ will rise. How about that? Is that encouraging? And you'll say, yeah, I've heard that a hundred times. I'm sure Jacob said, I've heard my grandfather talk about how we're going to inherit the whole earth, but he's dead. And I heard how my dad Isaac said the same thing, but he's blind. Do you have something better than that? And that's not I'm not saying that's bad, but I'm saying the heart needs a promise right now. Give me a promise right now. And he does. Verse 15. Verse 15 is one of the coolest promises. I can't tell you how many times I've Read this passage, but because now I preach on it, I had to meditate on it. Verse, verse 15, you need to underline it. You need to memorize it. And when you are really feeling alone, shout it at yourself in the mirror. It's incredible. Joe, you'll love this promise. Let's read it. Genesis 28, verse 15. And imagine being Jacob, you're alone. You're sleeping on a rock. And God says... In his person, Jacob, I am with you. I will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to the land in our ears. I will bring you home. Don't worry. I will not leave you until I have done what I promised. He gives him three personal promises. Jacob, not only are you part of this covenant, but you personally, I'm with you. I'm with you. That's said in the present tense. And that's the whole point of the dream, to show Jacob there's more going on in every moment than meets the eye. Think of it like this. The writer, Frederick Buchner, says, you will always enter the world of the extraordinary by the way of the ordinary. Something you see for a thousand times, you suddenly see it, as if it's for the first time. You do not have to go a great distance to enter it any more than you have to go a great distance to enter the world of dreams. In other words, heaven, the extraordinary, the place that's amazingly, abundantly above anything you can ask for, hope, or think, is right next to you. Look how Jacob, what Jacob says in verse 16. So Jacob realizes what's going on, he awakes, but he says this, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. I, I didn't know it. I should have known it. He, he's almost saying it out of guilt. Like, I was. how could I have been so stubborn not to see that God's always been with me? So a, a simple roadside stop becomes the gate to heaven. Jacob is able to experience the actual presence of God He's not alone at all. God is really with him right there as his head rests on a stone. As bleak as you can get, it becomes a gate to heaven. It's amazing to me. For me, I have found this principle, this extraordinary and the ordinary true all through my life. The moment I came to Christ, I came to know Jesus on the side of a road. I pulled my car over on Highway 44 in Ohio, it's out in the middle of nowhere. It's like Mentor, Ohio. There's cornfields all over. And I argued with God, and God came into my life that day. It was weird. A car ride on the way home from a bad day of work became one of the greatest days of my life. Or I love going to lakes and just throwing a rock, a rock into the water, and there's moments it's like I'm there throwing rocks with God. Or love going to Harold Christensen Nature Center, go to where that little creek is running by just a little creak, but there's moments that heaven just opens for you. No matter where you are, God is always right there, waiting in hiding behind the veil, because He wants you to want Him. So the question for you is, have you ever experienced the extraordinary and the ordinary? If you're a Christian, you should, often. Commenting on verse 16, one commentator writes, ignorance of or presumption on the presence of God is inexcusable. Meaning, meaning, what he means by this, don't blame Jared and the worship team that you didn't reach God. Don't blame the preacher that the sermon wasn't inspiring enough. And don't blame your parents that they didn't have devotions at dinner time for you not to meet God. You know what Scripture says, seek and you will find. Jesus says, not. And that door to the extraordinary will be open. Most people miss God because they don't look for him. And it's no one else's fault but yours. I like what Frederick Buchner goes on to say, and he's writing to pastors, and I love this. This is more, uh, this is more for me, but I want to read it to you. It says, some of us are from Missouri, Indiana, Michigan, but we are also from somewhere else. We are from Oz, Looking Glass Land, Narnia, or from Middle Earth. There's a child in all of us who is not just willing to believe in the possibility that maybe fairy tales are true after all, but that they are true. So let the preacher remember this and often preach to us, not just as men and women of the world, but as children too, who are often much more simple hearted than he supposes and much more hungrier for and ready to believe in and already in contact with more magic in mystery than most of the time even we are entirely aware of ourselves and then he says let the preacher stretch our imagination and strain our credulity and make our jaws drop and then he says it is sad because most preachers the person who is to be the steward of the wildest mystery of them all becomes the one who hangs back, becomes prudent and cautious, hopelessly mature and wise to the last. What he means by that is preachers are the ones who get to talk about angels and demons in and in forever, but yet they talk about it as if it's like talking about sawdust. I once heard this: The thing about actors is actors can take a story that isn't real and make it more alive. That's what makes a good actor. We're preachers of the people who have the greatest story. Make it as dry and boring as dust. Yes, someday Jesus will come back, but have a good day. God bless you. Isn't it wonderful? Ask and you receive. Seek and you'll find. Don't smile on your way out and be quiet in church. Like what? What happened to us? If anything, preachers should laugh the most because we got the weirdest job on earth. It really is weird. I'm talking about heaven every day. Heaven's real. Jesus is coming back. Do you believe it? If it's real, let's be a little bit happier than we are. Second thing, the promise he gives, not only am I with you right now, I'll watch over you and I will not leave you. God has Jacob's back. This exact verse is written in Hebrews 13. I think it's one of the best ones, especially if you're always worried about money. Hebrews thirteen five says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? What can Esau do to Jacob if God is with him? Honestly, what's interesting, we're going to find out is Esau, actually God changes his heart towards Jacob. God has Jacob's back. Then you can ask the question, what are you running from right now? Okay, here, let's imagine what you're running from catches you. What happens if it catches you? What then? Are you going to be destroyed? Is it going to be terrible? Or will God turn it around where you never saw what could be? I can remember it it was bleak For a while at my parents' house, my dad lost his job at the age of 55 for a whole year, a whole year. He took all of his invested money so he could pay his mortgage so he wouldn't lose his house. He had a really nice house. It was in this area where there's horse stables. We didn't have a horse, but it was just a really nice area. And they figured they better downsize. So he tried to sell this house. It wouldn't sell. It was a terrible market. So he had to keep taking his invested money and buying you know, paying for the mortgage. Till finally the house sold at a lower price than expected. He had to move on the other side of town, which was an older, smaller side of town. He bought a house half the size, but it was the perfect house for my mom to manage. And they had a pool. What's, what's you know, sad but also amazing is she wouldn't have been able to sustain the house. My dad died, and she has a really nice house now. That's right in town near her kids, and it's got a nice pool, so grandkids can come over, and it's smaller. It's perfect. We, our fears overwhelm us to the point where, what if they happen? Will God still take care of us? Yeah, he will. Don't worry. And then the third prayer is, he will, he will bring Jacob back home. This is a great promise for a homesick boy. Jacob's leaving the land. He goes, I'll bring you back to the land. And in Jacob's mind, the land isn't just the land. It's where his family is, but it's where God's blessing is. It's where God's presence has been promised to meet Abraham and his family. What is our home? What is the New Testament saints' home? The land was the covenant to God's presence in the Old Testament. What is our home now? Well, listen closely again to John 14. It's usually given at every funeral. Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house there are many rooms, and if it weren't so, I would have told you. I'm going to go there and prepare a place for you. And then he says this. If I go there and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back and get you so I can bring you to be where I am and we'll live there forever. What's our home? Our home isn't a building or a land. Our home is a person. Christ, he's everything. Verse 15 is a personal promise because God is a personal God. Now after God gives Jacob promises in verse 16, he goes to a vow. His heart is excited. Verse 16, when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord's in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? It has an exclamation point. It's, you shouldn't read it like you normally do. How awesome is this place? How awesome is this place? This is amazing. It's awesome. He believes, and because he believes, a new kind of faith is infused in his soul, a faith that's alive with angels. In and heaven, and demons, and forever, not just rocks, and lentil soup. I love how he says in verse 17, it says he was afraid, but then he was also just full of joy. I think this verse may be the greatest emotional description of what happens to the heart when you first encounter God. First, there's fear, and it's not a fear of, oh, I'm going to die. It's a fear of, Oh, wait a minute. There is a God that's alive and he's wild. Like you remember when the disciples were in the boat and there's a storm and Jesus wakes up and tells the storm, be quiet. And it says to the disciples, it goes, and the disciples were scared. But they weren't scared of the storm. They were scared of the man who calmed the storm. Real faith, Brings you to the point that this God is real and he can see me right now and he's with me all the time. But the second thing, it brings joy. He said, how awesome is this place? Because this wild, dangerous God is for me and with me and won't leave me. That's incredible. So he makes a vow. Verse 18 to 22. It says, early the next morning, well, it says at the end of verse verse 17, This is none other than the house of God right here. It's also the gateway, and that's where the word Bethel comes in. Bethel is Bethel, house of God. Then Jacob makes a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I'm taking, will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. There's some debate on this promise. Is Jacob wavering, saying, all right, God, you better perform, or I won't believe in you, or is this a, just an, an expression of his new faith? I think verse 22 says it's an expression of his new faith, and this stone that you set up as a, that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. Because all that you give me, I'll give you back a tenth. So he knows he's now to be sustained by God. It's going to be taken care of by God. And in a sense, this is how following God always feels. When you finally come into his presence, you want to make promises. You want to make a commitment. You want to be different. Even though God promises the new life that has been poured in us will cause us to want to respond in a commitment. God, take my life interesting, when Peter first preached in the New Testament, 3,000 people became Christians. First sermon in the New Testament. It says they were, when Peter's preaching, they were cut to the heart. So the Spirit of God came on them. They were cut to the heart. And then after they were cut to the heart, they asked Peter, what must we do? What do you want us to do? It's really all he's saying here is he's going, God, all right, I'm going to follow you. Just take care of me. When you are awakened by God, you can't keep living as you always had before. You just can't. So look at Genesis 29, verse 1. Then Jacob continued on. He continued on. So the homesick man was strengthened by the vision of the stairway. It's what he needed. So he continued on. But you, you could say, how about your life? You are here with your rock in your certain place it's not that important stuck in Kent City Sparta Newego, some of you are in Grand Rapids wherever you are I mean where's your stairway to help you continue on do we have a stairway that will give us hope to continue on I'm glad you asked that question that's a great question go to John chapter one I knew you'd ask that question John chapter 1, verse 45 to 51. Isn't it nice when that goes off for a second? Ah. John 1, 45 to 51. So Jesus is looking for disciples. He found a guy by the name of Philip. Philip had a buddy named Nathaniel and wanted Nathaniel to meet Jesus. And we, find, we pick up the story in verse 45 of chapter 1. John. Philip found Nathanael, his buddy, and told him, hey, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote. His name's Jesus. He's of the town Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael, he tells the truth. He goes, Nazareth, man? That whole podunk town? The Messiah's from Nazareth? Can anything good come to that place? Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found, oh, okay, wait, I missed it. Go back to 46. Nazareth, anything good from there? Come and see, said Philip, verse 47. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here is a true Israelite in who there's nothing false, meaning now there's a guy that will just tell what's on his mind, the truth. Verse 48. Nathanael said, how do you know me? Jesus answered, well, I saw you while you are still under the fig tree, before Philip called you. What Jesus is saying, I know everything. I saw you there a long way off. He's kind of showing how he is divine. Verse 49, And then Nathanael declared, Teacher, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus said, Well, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. But you shall see greater things than these. Okay, so what are the greater things? He then said to Nathanael, I tell you, and here's the greater thing. Tell you the truth, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending. That's that stairway deal. But they're descending and ascending on the Son of Man. In other words, He's the bridge, He's the passageway from earth to heaven. He's the one that transports us from the world of the ordinary into the world of the extraordinary. He's the one that has come to give us life and life abundantly. The Son of Man. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator. That's a bridge. That's a stairway. One God and one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus. And he gave himself up as a ransom for us all. So he's the bridge for everyone to make it to heaven. So, in the story, we went. Jacob was on a run trying to escape the wrath of his brother, and God said, Not to worry, I'm with you. The sinner, the average person, is also on a run, trying to escape a life that's wearing him out, trying to escape the wrath of a holy God because it gets tiring to try to please him because he's holy. You can't do enough, you can't be good enough, you can't be religious enough, and you get tired. So what happens is the sinner falls and rests his head on a rock. In the story, they anointed the rock, the anointed rock. This rock is where he rests his head. This rock, which becomes the gateway to heaven, this rock is the rock, the Christ, the anointed one. He is the bridge for everyone. The Son of Man is the ladder to the Father because he took the wrath, he paid the ransom, and he has become our bridge. So there's some of you who are running from him, running from God. You've been running your whole life and you're exhausted. My only advice is, I only have one piece of advice. Rest your head on a rock and he'll take care of you. He'll be with you. And he'll never leave you, nor forsake you. And Jerry, is he good? He's good. Let's pray.